Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have uh, someone that has the Midas stats for investing and really backing, you know, founders that are going from zero to one. So I think that, you know, we're going to be very much enjoying his journey, you know, his career, uh, and also what he's doing right now with startups, which I think is remarkable. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Yusi Salovara. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Alejandro. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So originally born in Finland, you know, there and raised in a mid-sized town. So how was life growing up? Give us a little of a walk through memory lane. Ah, so yeah, I'm from Huvinka, Finland. Shout out. I'm pretty sure no one from Huvinka is going to be listening to this. Um, but, you know, imagine an American suburb and then like throwing some Soviet Union vibes. Um, that's that's pretty much what what my life growing up was like. I'm born uh, early '80s, so I'm a '90s child in that sense. Um, and you know everything was gray, uh, except that we played a lot of football, like oh soccer for U.S. folks. But uh, I, I guess your audience is from everywhere. Hey, I do understand you know completely that. And one thing that I that I didn't really get was coming here to the U.S. and people call football grabbing the ball with their hands instead of you know <laughs> kicking with the feet, right? That's why it's called yeah. football. But anyways, that's a different conversation, I guess. You know, here, you know, one thing that happened to you is that you spent quite a bit of time traveling. You were singing. So how did that come about? That's right. So um, I was always an avid singer from an early age. And um, I, I ended up singing in a choir uh, in Helsinki, a boys choir, if you believe it. And um, we ended up traveling a lot uh, over, over, you know, all over Europe. Uh, Europe. Uh, I went to U.S. Um, several times where what was fascinating about this was that we would always, of course, tour because you're going from town to town. And then we'd also live at host families' homes. So I remember at age 11, being from a small town in Finland, you know, being in the U.S. at Halloween, doing Trick or treat uh, was an amazing experience for, for me. Same at, at age uh, 12, I was in Japan and living at a Japanese family's home where they spoke basically no English. Obviously, we didn't speak Japanese. So we're just trying to figure each other out by, by uh, you know, gestures, etc. And um, you end up really immersing yourself in other people's culture. So I think what that really taught me was this open-mindedness regarding other cultures and uh, also very much an international uh, flavor. I mean, you've been moving quite a bit throughout your entire life. I mean, you know, you studied abroad. Now you're living in Singapore. So no doubt that you're a citizen of the world. Now, in your case, you moved uh, quite early, you know, at 16 to Helsinki. And one thing that uh, that I find very interesting as part of your journey is that you've, you've gotten into card games. You know, I think that you like that strategy, you know, that strategy aspect, whether it's poker or, or whatever card games that you could get a, your hands on. So, so where did you get that appetite for strategy? 
Ah, excellent question. I, I actually think uh, I ended up getting it from those games. So, you know, I played Magic the Gathering, this trading card game growing up. And um, it started as a as a thing where we didn't prep much and we just put the cards together, put our deck together from the cards we have. And, and then at some point you realize, like, you're just losing all the time. And then that leads to the conclusion, hey, I need a strategy. And then after that, you start kind of prepping, you start practicing. And when you, when I, at a young age, saw that leading to results, I think that's actually created this mindset that's helped me throughout <laughs> my professional career as well. So um, strategy, when you then combine it with winning tactics, um, it's a fantastic recipe. So then you ended up going to business school. Uh, you yep. know, you went there to Helsinki Business School. Uh, you did a nice semester there in London as part of that uh, jumping around the world. That uh, is something that you know is a uh, is a good thing here. You know, in your in your background, and then from there, you know, you venture into the corporate world, and you did you know different roles. I mean, you've done investment banking, you've done consulting, you've done pension funds. You know, more perhaps on the investment you know side of things. And then, you know, you took a different role, which was the techie side of things, you know, which is Nokia, which was the most immediate step to really venture in the world of startups. I guess, you know, out of those experiences, you know, what can you say that you learned? Because I find that you have something interesting here as part of your background, and that is, I would say, institutional uh, knowledge transfer to a certain degree, where you have like you've been able to jump through different industries and then how you apply that knowledge to the next industry that you're going to be involved with. But I guess, why don't we start with, on the investment side, with pension funds. What did you learn? That was, end of the day, my like, first foray into the world of business. I, I work mainly around public markets, um, you know, preparing investments and, and um, then, you know, executing trades with the team. I think that was sort of a natural continuum of the or continuation of of what I mentioned earlier about the card games, et cetera. So you basically, you know, formulate your strategy, which is like the investment you're going to be making. And then you, you know, after that, uh, combine with tactics to have solid sort of trades um, around that investment per se. So so it really... Um, prepared me or or helped me learn about preparation, analyzing companies. Uh, and that has been very helpful throughout because even if we're talking about an early stage company, you can still analyze kind of the frames and what you need to have in place. Um, even though, you know, when you're doing a pre-seed deal, you're not going to have anything in place right now as such. But, you know, you, you can analyze what needs to be in place down the line and then that analytical framework has been quite helpful because quite often I, I also see when I talk to other investors, there's unfortunately a bit of finger in the air uh, out there when it comes to early stage venture investing. And I think this backbone of having a slightly more analytical frame, um, frame of mind uh, has helped me. And I'm sure that that's also, you know, a pattern that you experienced while you were at Morgan Stanley. I mean, a little bit different than perhaps McKinsey. But I find that McKinsey, you know, perhaps, you know, for you was interesting because you had that strategy thing going. Uh, you oh, you were into strategy and we talked yeah. about that earlier. Uh, but I wonder, like, how did you 
blend now strategy coming with problem solving with the execution side, which is something mm -hmm. that, you know, the consulting experience gives you of being able to grab one big problem and breaking it down into small problems and then how you tackle them. Yeah. So quickly touching on Morgan Stanley before before we go to McKinsey, what that really taught me is, is to work hard. So uh, I remember my one 110 hour works work weeks at Canary Wharf in London and uh, and that's one lesson you don't easily forget. Um, but um, at, at McKinsey, it was really about uh, slicing a problem into manageable bite-sized solutions that you solve in different ways. And this goes both for, again, like analytical or conceptual problem solving as well as execution. So I think that, you know, going from strategy to execution, it's really this step-by-step -step, uh, approach that, you know, you saw this or you see these um, achievements in these small steps and then Basically, you do enough of the uh, small steps, you you see big results. So, and and this is uh, again something that you you see a lot in startups too. Like, you know, uh, just solving problems every day, um, step by step, and getting perhaps more work done than competition is going to be a recipe for success. Now, in this case, you know what happened is that then you know. One thing led to the next, and you are in Helsinki. You are working at Nokia. And really, Nokia is where you finally got bored of the corporate world. What happened yeah. there? Well, so I had started you know, looking at uh, early-stage tech companies as investment opportunities. And um, at the same time, when I reflected back on my day job, um, I realized that uh, too much of it is political games, which I I was extremely good at, and I realized I don't want to be good at that. I'm not a politician. I don't especially want to be a corporate politician. Um, while at the same time, I was looking at these uh, tech startups who um, you know grow and change the world. I started uh, making some investments, and then there was this massive moment of serendipity for me uh, where. My old colleague from uh, McKinsey days, Magnus Grimeland, who had left uh, McKinsey 2013 and moved to Singapore to build uh, Zalora.com, which is the region's largest fashion e-commerce company, he, um, him and I got talking and uh, he asked me if I wanted to join him uh, to, to build what's now Antler, basically building a new kind of platform to help founders and build a global venture firm. So uh, I, I basically, you know, took a few seconds to make the emotional decision, uh, you know, a few hours to make the rational decision. And then it took a few days to convince my wife. But um, so that, that was kind of my... But my I mean, that's not, a, that's not a small thing because, I mean, you guys literally packed the bags and, and went to Singapore. So how do you yeah. get to that, you know, infinite clarity or high conviction that uh, this was worth it to not only leave your professional career behind, you know, the corporate world that you had been, you know, part of for, you know, close to 15 years, uh, but then also to move all your life and everything, you know, to Singapore. That's a big deal. Yeah, I mean, it is. You're absolutely right. Um, 
I think it was a reflection of several different things. One is um, I had been thinking a lot about what to do in a way that is more impactful on the world. What can I do to have some kind of legacy instead of just doing things that don't add any value to anyone? because um, also I felt like I'm not even adding shareholder value because, you know, these corporates are so huge. I was also excited about Southeast Asia as a region. Um, I first visited Singapore in 2005, and I'd been very much intrigued ever since. Um, and then the vision that uh, Magnus had at that point, which was, you know, has evolved quite a bit um, since then, was very compelling to me, and it still is, and we've evolved it since. But um, it was a combination of, in a way, very attractive pull factors and an inner push factor that I had at that point in time. So uh, I haven't regretted it for a single second. Um, So I guess you can say that there had been like this inner strategy process brewing in in my head for for a time and then and this is the thing this is the thing that you by the way always need to have you need to be prepared in my opinion to make fast moves uh but you can only do it if the strategy in the background is is in order right so for the people that are listening to get it what is antler antler is the world's largest uh early stage uh uh, investment platform when it comes to geographical presence. We have 25 locations around the world with teams on the ground, boots on the ground. In each of these locations, we make uh, pre-seed investments, um, both into existing companies, as well as um, doing something that almost no one else does, where we find individuals um, at the literally the start of their journey, so you know often people say they're you know day zero we we you know we back you from day one or whatever, but it's not really not day one. It's typically something where you've been around for six months or a year and a half. For us, it's literally day zero or even before that, typically. So you haven't even incorporated a company. You might not even have an idea. What we do is we put together a program where we find talented entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs. These people typically have around 10 years of work experience, but the range is huge. We backed students and we backed people with 35 years of experience. Um, And we help people with finding a co-founder finding the right business model for what you're building, coaching. We invest pre-seed to series C right now. Uh, and then we help help them with our uh, global advisory board where we have uh, around 700 advisors right now. So it, we are an investment firm first and foremost, but we um, make our investment decisions slightly differently and we back founders from from literally day zero. How many funds and assets under management do you guys have? We have uh, right now around uh, 700 million uh, US AUM and um, 15 different early stage funds, but we're growing rapidly. 
Um, so 25 locations is what we have right now. Every continent is covered. Um, we're in the US in three locations. We launched uh, Brazil last year. And then you go east from there. We have several locations in Europe, East Africa, out of Kenya and uh, Ethiopia. We have APAC is covered from several different locations. We started out here in Singapore, and this is our headquarters, but uh, we are a global firm. As of and why, why do you want that physical presence, especially in the world that we're living in, living in today, where we have that digital experience too? What's the purpose? A lot of what we do is tied to um, a physical setup where we, you know, help founders work with each other. And that is something we found that you cannot replicate only with a virtual uh, presence, can't do only remotely. We we actually saw that through COVID. Um, so there's trade-offs, like there's positive things that come with, you know, virtual, remote, etc. But then there's also some costs attached. So like I always think about like if I had to find a co-founder for myself and start building something with someone, how would I personally build confidence um, in that person as a co-founder? And there's many different things. There's, you know, uh, having aligned values. There's uh, working together for a while. There's um, getting to know each other socially. For me, there's also getting drunk together. Like, you know, there's different things like this. Yeah. There's limits to how much I can do, like, uh, fully remotely. I hear you. And uh, because of this, um, we believe in having deep impact on the ecosystems we operate in. And uh, we do this um, by having strong local setups, full teams, and, and having our programs uh, physically set up on the ground. So. It's not so much a question of, uh, it was never a question for us, like, do we have something on the ground or not? I know other people who run, let's say, accelerators or so, run fully remote setups. Y Combinator comes to mind. Uh, they've invested a lot all over the world out of um, SF. Yeah. And, you know, great, it's worked for them. We have a different uh, view of the world and I think uh, want to have you know, larger impact in the ecosystems we work with. And how many how many investments have you guys done since 2017 that you got started here? Around uh, 750 now globally. Majority is after. So if you think about that structure, it's of course the base is quite young. So majority is the last two years. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams 
through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, you were talking about, um, you know, the the co-founder, co-founder relationships, like the importance of being there, the importance of getting drunk together. So <laughs> what does, you know, magic, because, I mean, you've seen a lot of teams. You've seen what the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to uh, co-founders too. Tell us about magical co-founder dynamics, you know, when that match is just made in heaven kind of thing. Excellent question. I mean, um, for me, I have this co-founder. One of my co-founders is a guy called Begard. And I, I'm not claiming that we're magical, like, end-to-end, but there's something magical, which is that we have, we push each other like crazy. We challenge each other like crazy. We fight like crazy, but we love each other. And it's it's like very... Like it, it, there's never even been a chink in the armor from all of this. So there, there's something where like you're you're so much in the same boat together, fighting towards the same goal, and you know you realize it's never anything personal, but and both are so passionate about the same goal that it leads to this like no barrier thing, uh, and everything is for the you know benefit of the company. Not every relationship can be like that. Like, for example, for me and Magnus, it's different um, in different ways, powerful. Um, but like, there, there's really something about shared values, um, shared goal. And, um, and, and, you know, most of the founder breakups I see are somehow related to not having an aligned view of the target vision of the company and then you end up like you know fighting about the small stuff and the breakup can seemingly be about oh misalignment on xyz but it's truly about the values behind um you need to be different and you need to be able to challenge each other that is for me personally the the most important factors and um you know if you're if if there's a power imbalance in a founding team that's also a red flag for me. Like if someone, let's say there's a big equity mismatch or or like, you know, someone has more equity or someone's the de facto leader, like you need to have, someone needs to be the CEO, but like you need to be balanced in, an, in a co-founder relationship. Otherwise, one person is the founder and the others are employees. And what about balancing that uh, long-term and short-term vision? Yeah, e- excellent question. I mean, this comes goes back to what we discussed about um, you know slicing things into smaller, manageable um, pieces. And you know, as long as your long term objective is the same, uh, you can kind of um, you can still typically balance the short term. Whereas if your short term goals are you know 
aligned, but your long-term goals are not, then that's obviously a much bigger issue. So I, I do think that the long-term is what matters and the rest is uh, execution almost. No, no kidding. Now, uh, obviously, crazy environment that uh, we are experiencing, you know, crazy macro, you know, uh, hurdles, um, you know, landscape, obviously, you know, the fundraising, you know, a lot of people that are listening now, you know, are, are thinking, hey, you know, what's going on? How should I approach this? Uh, you're seeing a lot. There's a lot of companies that you guys have in your ecosystem. What are your, what's your take on, on the current, you know, uh, landscape? And then also how should people approach it? from a fundraising perspective? Yeah, no, excellent question. I think this is going to be top of mind for a lot of uh, founders, especially, um, you know, and everyone needs to have a solid runway. Fundraising is not easy right now. So, you know, also encourage everyone to think about whether or not they have uh, unnecessary cost in the budget. Just today, I talked to someone who, you know, a founder who had started from a very unhealthy starting point of, you know, three, four months of runway. And now he was at, you know, six, seven months runway. Not good at all. But I mean, if you can double your runway with not so drastic actions, like you're not, you're not firing half the team, um, that's quite telling. So, so you know, there's often uh, a bit too much uh, excess you know, in companies at times. But um, I mean, you need to um, build relationships in this ecosystem for the long term and the and the short term. I think I would encourage all founders to think about future raises quite early, get to know prospective investors um, years in advance, because this is a human business end of the day. And um, it helps when you build those connections early. In the short term, um, you know, you probably you might not have that luxury right now. It's really all about uh, finding different sources of capital hanging in there. Um, and this this is all assuming your business is is uh, working well, by the way. So if your business is not working well, this is the time where you get get hit uh, even harder. Um, so I think, or let me take a step back there. Like if your business is soaring, fantastic rocket ship, you'll get funded. So this is not the audience for, for this, right? Then if your business is, you know, suffering big time, maybe you shouldn't be able to, uh, raise. So if that, if that sounds rough, then, you know, it is what it is. But then there's this the group in the middle. This is kind of doing well, but, you know, um, perhaps more difficult than before to find uh, sources of capital or, you know, doing okay. And, but so, so there's this kind of group of companies that are they're doing quite well, but not like fantastic. Fantastic. You're not looking at 40% month-on-month growth or anything crazy like that. But, you know, maybe you're slugging along, you're growing like... 7% a month and you know you feel like you're doing well but people are not getting excited. So I think here you just need to have a very systematic approach at identifying different investors, hustling like crazy to get in front of them. Um and th- sometimes this means you 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 can't always reach out to them directly. So, you know, reach out like 
get to know someone who knows them as the as the second tier option in a way. Uh, these days, there's a lot of these softwares that help with warm introductions, like some like someone in your network knows someone in your network knows someone in someone else's network, and then suddenly there's like a it's like a match can that can happen. So so one thing is is um, having kind of great um, um, great identification of investors, then hustling to get in front of them. And then when you get in front of them, there's like this, you need to have a compelling package around the business, which, which um, you know, hopefully uh, almost everyone these days knows how to do. There's a lot of tutorials and this stuff. Um, and uh, or you can also work with Antler because you know you know you can have a great partner like us, and then it's uh, then it's much uh, easier. But what's quite interesting is like for me, fundraising is not a complicated topic, but also it's the one that founders most want to talk about. Like when so we when we pull our um, founder portfolio and portfolio companies, the number one topic that they uh, value is fundraising. And what about that rocket ship uh, growth um, that you were talking to? You know, which obviously you're gonna have no problem raising money. Let's talk. Let's talk about two points there that uh, that you talk um, and that I'm sure that you coach your companies. You know, a lot on. One is achieving product market fit. You know, how do you get to product market fit and you get to product market fit fast? And what does that look like? Um. Well. How to get there is is not easy, obviously. So, you know, and it depends on what type of business you're running. So you need to have um, somehow a vision around your product. And then you just go into heavy, heavy iteration mode, try different things, try different variants. And hopefully you have enough time to run enough tests that at some point something starts sticking. What it looks like is like, you know, where you feel like everything's breaking, everything's uncomfortable. Um, but like, you know, you're constantly shipping product, you're constantly growing fast and you, you're not, you know, you're barely hanging in there to deliver to the customers that you kind of, um, sell to. And, um, and it's a fantastic, uh, situation to be in, but, I think every founder I've talked to about that is like they they just feel like they're they're not in control and things are growing almost uncontrollably um and it feels unpleasant but in in hindsight you realize oh shit that was product market fit and you know we really have have something here so uh, how to get there I would just recommend kind of these iterative loops um you know founders will know best what's what's the what's the starting point for their business and then try different things when when it doesn't work i don't think like if we talk about generic insights then this is generic but you know in the world of generic insights there's only generic insights so let, let's talk about something that is not so generic. Let's talk about outworking the competition because that's another one. Give us a clear example of a portfolio company of yours that outworked the competition. For sure. So we have a company here in in based out of Asia. It's called Zanpool. They um they uh, 
my number one most concrete example of of this company outworking competitions was a super small thing, but you know, moving fast and working hard compounds. And you know, if you work an hour more per week than your comp- competition, that's just so much when you multiply by you know number of people working number of weeks, number of years. Um, so, so that compounds like crazy. So I remember a few years ago, I was in Finland um, at around New Year. Okay. This company is based in Asia. And I remember this is a tiny, tiny thing, but it's just always stuck in my head as an example of how, how like you're on the ball fast. So this company was always sending... Um, Investor reports, again, the dumbest thing. Uh, they wanted to get it out of the way after the end of month, done super fast and focus on the business. So I'm, I'm sitting there. It's 31st of December. It's like 9 p.m. in Finland, 2 a.m. in Singapore. And I get the investor report for that December. And the year is not even over for me. And it's a high-quality report. And I was like, awesome, let me, let me read it. Or maybe I shouldn't read that on New Year's Eve, but still, <laughs> I was reading it. And, um, and somehow, like, this company has always operated like that, super fast precision, fast execution, and, and, and working hard, no matter if it's uh, New, Year's, New Year's Day, New Year's Eve, um, you know, you name it, just uh, move super fast. And, uh, and that always, like I said, stuck in my head, and, and the company's been doing doing great so um just a tiny example but of something that shines through and they 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 definitely had product market fit at some point they're running at uh i don't want to say you know any of their numbers but you know they've raised the series b done really well nice so let's say you go to sleep tonight you see and you wake up in a world where the vision of Adler is fully realized. What does that world look like? Oh, wow. Like, like a magic wand moment here. Um, well, it's a world where we are, we have more innovation uh, everywhere. I'm, I go back to uh, Finland for New Year's, continuing on the previous example. And um, I just see an improved side. There's a bunch of uh, Antler companies in the ecosystem. Um, and those guys have, have done uh, great work. We also have more, more entrepreneurs. So that's one of the things that, you know, um, we set out to help with is to help more people become entrepreneurs, um, not to get profiles that shouldn't be entrepreneurs, but there's a lot of entrepreneurial spirit in different parts of society. And we're not believers in kind of that entrepreneurial uh, pool of people just like organically ending up being entrepreneurs. Um, and we also don't believe that, you know, corporate people can't be great entrepreneurs. There's great entrepreneurial talent everywhere. So we've been able to increase the number of uh, entrepreneurs in every ecosystem we operate in. And, and there's, um, you know, new innovative companies everywhere. That's pretty much like my, my vision. And yeah, let's have a couple of uh, Airbnbs and Stripes in there as well. 
Love it. So, uh, so, so there's, there's a lot of entrepreneurs right now that are listening to you, you know, entrepreneurs all over the world and the entrepreneurs that, you know, are a different, you know, cycles in their journey and perhaps, you know, the companies that they're building. Some, you know, that are listening, you know, are right now perhaps working at a company just like you did back in the day and wondering, you know, what that world will look like, that world where perhaps, you know, they're giving their notice and taking the leap of faith. I guess for all these people, regardless in the cycle that they're in of their own um, entrepreneurial experience, what is one piece of advice that you think they should keep very much in mind as they continue to go along in this entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, so... I, uh, I, first of all, I want to say that you're never going to regret it. You jump, you take the leap, leap, you start building your own thing. You're never going to regret it. That's not the advice, but I just want to encourage people who haven't done it yet to, to go down that path. Um, I think I've talked to a lot of people who also failed and they still don't regret it. So, so, you know, you're never going to regret it. The advice I have is, is, is actually an advice on humility, right? We've we've seen years in the past now where like, you know, founders get um too excited by their own hype and this leads to ethical issues, etc. I I think stay true to yourself. Don't believe your own hype. Remember that you know, at some point when your company is doing well, you become the kind of hot commodity at the party and everyone wants to you know, be, um, you know, suck up to you and all that. You're still the same person. You're, you're growing in different ways, but you're fundamentally still the same person. So, you know, you're not better. You're not worse. You're just, you're the same. So I, I would recommend this kind of um, attitude of humility because it's also going to help you avoid mistakes in the future, both for your company as well as for yourself psychologically, because it's only a trap that you're going to, you know, run yourself into if you don't. Very profound, you see. For the people that are listening, I, I mean, I love it. You know, I remember a tool that, that reminds me of something that I think was Robert De Niro that said that you don't celebrate so much the highs and don't be too down on the lows, because at the end mm -hmm. of the day, there's going to be those ups and downs. And if you don't maintain that consistency, then you're going to be, you know, put to the, to the ground. So uh, I love what you just said. You know, I, I, really, I really stand by that too. I could definitely subscribe to it. So for the people that are listening, Juicy, that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Connect on LinkedIn, juicyadantler.co, uh, um, always a good channel. I've, uh, I've, I avoid Twitter uh, because of uh, the, the whole... Uh, empty room hype cycle thing. So I, I uh, yeah, LinkedIn probably best or, or email. Amazing. Well, Juicy, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thanks, Alejandro. Thanks for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.